VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 135 of The Bowery Boys. The High Line. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we're here to bring you the story of a very curious public park. A one-mile-long park atop an abandoned elevated railroad. Today, we call it the High Line. Yesterday, we called it an eyesore. <laughs> but Greg, I would go so far as to call the High Line New York's hottest park. Because only in New York can you have a hot park. <laughs> oh, of course. You have uncool parks, right. of course, many of those. Sure, but like this the one, one across the street here. <laughs> but this is the hottest park. Part of this is because it's very new, at least the park portion. It has only been open since 2009. But it's built atop this structure that's been around for decades. And whose very existence tells the story of transportation in New York City. Now, in this show, we're actually going to go back really far to tell the story of the High Line. We're going to dig really deep here. I want to actually talk about the character and the identity of the Lower West Side. For most of its existence, this area was uh, an industrial area with warehouses and was serviced by a railroad that actually distributed goods to factories and plants all up and down the water here. Now, it has been this way for almost 200 years. It's amazing to me that the character of that neighborhood is only just now changed in the past 20 years. Mm. For almost 200 years, it had this industrial quality. And I think that many people, when they see the High Line, if they hear that there's a history of trains pulling down the west side, which, of course, we'll get into, they don't realize that the High Line structure itself only goes back into about 1930. This story has ramifications for a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of popular neighborhoods now, Tribeca, the West Village, Meatpacking District, West Chelsea, and Hell's Kitchen. It's a story of those neighborhoods, and atop of that, the history of the High Line. Atop of that. Very cute, Greg. <laughs> so join us as we amble along New York's newest and hottest park. Well, Tom, let me situate the High Line. This is, this is certainly a place that needs situation, be, mm-hmm. so to speak, because it's like a snake slithering through blocks and down streets. The High Line 
Park today, that's its current name, is this unusual one-mile public park that utilizes a set of abandoned elevated train lines. It's presently one mile, but of course it was a lot longer back in the day, and in fact it was connected to a train line that went all the way outside of Manhattan. And just to help the future listener, we are recording this in 2012, The park was initially shorter when it opened in 2009. It expanded last year, and there are plans for future expansion. So I look forward to future audiences (laughs) listening to this when it's a longer park. Yes. Now, the southernmost approach into the High Line, so the southernmost part of it, starts in the Meatpacking District. It begins on Gansevoort Street. It runs somewhat parallel along the western shore, along the Hudson River. It runs all the way up to 30th Street. But notably, it's running between 10th and 11th Avenue for much of that track. So it's not actually going up above 10th Avenue or 11th Avenue. Yeah, it crosses over 10th Avenue around 15th Street. through those blocks. Now, these tracks are peculiar because, you know, it weaves all around streets, but it even weaves through buildings. Now, atop this park, uh, you'll find a, a variety of different cultivated trees and plants, some artistic features, some installations. Uh, Some seating areas, some food areas, very well-designed, very beautiful, modern. There's even two places where you can sit and watch the traffic zoom right by you. In fact, zoom underneath you. It really is an amazing, tranquil place considering where it is, what its history has been, and what its history is today. It goes through a couple of very trendy neighborhoods of art galleries and high-fashion shops and clubs, but it still retains this solace, and it's it can be quite quiet and extremely beautiful up there, and you get to see New York literally from a different perspective. I think that in many parks in the city, you go to get away from the city. For example, Central Park does a great job of masking the city from view often, but the High Line's a totally different kind of park because you go up there really to see the city from a different angle. As a linear park, you never forget that you are in New York City. In fact, it uses the architecture to its advantage to make a far more pleasant experience. Now, if you were standing at this spot at Gansevoort, 200 years ago at this spot, it would be very a quiet path that drifted down towards the water. And right here would be Fort Gansevoort, an old fort that was built during the War of 1812, when we thought the British were going to attack us again. But uh, they never did, and that fort was never used. This entire area, which we now call the Meatpacking District, was a northern extension of Greenwich Village, which was to the north of the city of New York, and, and a sometimes vacation spot for city dwellers. And meanwhile, the future neighborhood of Chelsea was just somebody's lavish estate. It was owned by one particular family, <laughs> right. Clement Clark Moore. Greg, I want to take us much further upstate, around 1826, when the first permanent railroad in New York State was formed. That's the Mohawk and Hudson. It connected Schenectady with Albany. And during this time period, in the 1820s and 30s, it was really the birth of rail in the United States. And there were these small independent railroads, you know, that would connect cities, they'd connect waterways and towns and make big loops. We touch on this briefly in our New York Elevated Railroad podcast, which was... During the transportation summer. Yeah, almost two years ago, we recorded that. And yeah, so you had these small little rail lines. They were afraid of the consolidation. They thought that, uh, you know, these railroads were being developed by small business owners. They'd, they didn't want to lose control, but in, in fact, eventually they did. And these lines in Upper New York State would merge in 1853 into the New York Central Railroad. 
Around this time, in 1846, another railroad was chartered, the Hudson River Railroad, to link East Albany, so just to the east of the Hudson River, down the Hudson and into New York City. And the next year, New York passed a charter that allowed the railroad to lay tracks along the streets on Manhattan's west side to bring trains in. So the trains would come down the Hudson. They'd go over Spuytendoyvelt Creek mm -hmm. across a drawbridge there, continue down the west side. Now, between 60th Street and 34th Street, the train was running at street level. Uh, just, so like just, a, just like a proper train, but in, on Midtown, the street, in right. Midtown Manhattan. Right. And so this would be basically speeding through Hell's Kitchen down to 34th Street. Which were, of course... Hardly developed at that time. No, but, but there, there were, were there some were, residents yeah, there, was, there. There were things happening. Shanties, right. And into the 34th Street Station. Now at 34th Street Station, and this is where the passengers would have to get off. But they would take horse carriages from there? Exactly. Okay. Now, they couldn't run the train with its normal engine south of 34th Street, and so they had a dummy engine, which was a steam engine that was disguised to look like a passenger car. <laughs> thinking that that would actually not spook the horses that were on the street. Okay. Because, of course, there were all manner of horses pulling carriages and such. The tracks then would go down 10th Avenue from 34th Street all the way down to West Street. So that's a long stretch. Mm -hmm. Then shoot east on Canal Street and then down Hudson to the terminus at Chambers and Hudson Street. And if the passengers got off at 34th Street, then I'm assuming this was for non-human passengers, whether it be freight, cattle, Produce, animals, milk, that kind of thing. things right. coming in, supplies for the factories along the way, and the train could just stop along the way, which we'll get into. Mm -hmm. So I can assume, then, that the West Side sort of took on this odd character because you have this train zooming through here in the 1850s all of a sudden. And between 34th Street and Chambers Street, you have the train making all these various stops. Yes, and it was a big draw for industry from the east side where you had lots of factories. It drew them over to the west side because suddenly they could get their merchandise out, they could get their supplies in very quickly. So the West Side industry was really built up because of the Hudson River Railroad. But as you mentioned, it also created more of a shantytown north of the 34th Street Station all the way up to 60th Street, where the train would just shoot down the middle of the street. Well, you didn't have nearly as many residences on the West Side. You, you did have some areas, like, for instance, where the Meatpacking District is. It would have actually some rather nice homes around that time. But for the most part, most of New York lived on the East Side and on the West Side, became sort of de facto industrial area. Although we're talking about the 1850s. 1850s, this, 1850s and yes. And this situation would remain in effect until 1929. So certainly by the time the High Line opened and the West Side Improvement, which you'll get to here, the situation had changed. And of course, people were living over here. Now, this isn't the only train line coming into New York. Oh, that's right. And that would be the New York and Harlem Railroad, which goes down the center of the island and is exclusively for passengers. And that would actually link up with the horse car system that was in the city proper. Now, in the 1860s uh, comes along the man that would consolidate everything, the most important man in New York in transportation, Cornelius Vanderbilt. I was thinking Robert Moses was around <laughs> in the 1860s. I'd like to see these two arm wrestle, Ooh. actually. Now, Vanderbilt succeeded in consolidating all of those smaller train lines that you had mentioned that were in upstate New York. 
Um, now he decided that he wanted all the trains that were coming to New York. He developed a transportation monopoly that came into the city. Um, in 1863, he bought the New York and Harlem Railroad. In 1864, he, in various crafty ways, uh, uh, including some s- stock grabs, replacing certain people on board of directors, that type of mm. thing. By 1864, he had control of the Hudson River Railroad. Mm-hmm. And then by 1869, he had the New York Central Railroad, and he had he tied all of it up in a nice big bow and called it the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad. Essentially, if you wanted to get into Manhattan, you didn't want to take a ferry, you had to use something that was Vanderbilt controlled. In fact, it would be like this in New York until the beginning of the 20th century when the Pennsylvania Railroad built its tunnels underneath the Hudson River for their trains. So total monopoly on it. And for much more on that, we have a Pennsylvania Station podcast. Having one person control all of this was in certain ways good for passengers because it increased railroad interconnections. It made Vanderbilt explosively rich in the process. Mm -hmm. He decided that for those interior tracks, like I said, those would be strictly that's where all passengers would go on. The Hudson River, which had, of course, had both a mixture of freight and passengers, in 1871 would go just freight. Now, a new interesting change happens to the west side here when Vanderbilt comes along. That Chambers Street depot was just simply not enough for him. This was going to be a larger, more sophisticated set of tracks. So let's hearken back a little bit to the 1830s. There's this quiet little neighborhood to the west of Greenwich Village called St. John's Park. It was on land that was owned by Trinity Church, and it was developed specifically to be a place where very wealthy people could live. And there was a nice, beautiful park, and it was based around a church there, and it was one of the most lovely areas in 1830. But of course, now we're in the 1860s, and it's very close to these dirty trains and filthy industry and most of the rich people have left so vanderbilt simply bought this entire area and built the saint john's freight depot here in 1869 and do you know where that would be today it would be in the tribeca neighborhood today Uh it's essentially where the entrance to the holland tunnel is Mm -hmm. you can picture that on the west side So these train lines that you had mentioned are now pulling all the way down here to this new St. John's Freight Depot. To give you a sense of how important and how dominant train transports and the industries and the warehouses here, how important it was to life in New York City, this vein of track down the island was sometimes called the lifeline of New York Hmm. because most goods and services came through on these tracks. So that's in 1869. In 1871, he would build an even grander depot, namely the Grand Central Depot. And that would not be for freight. That would not be for freight. And so, of course, it was far more ornate, far more beautiful. This is, of course, not the Grand Central Terminal that we have, but the Grand Central Depot, which was in 1871. Its predecessor. It's very beautiful, but a very inferior predecessor, correct. Now, by the way, our current Grand Central Terminal and old St. John's Park have something that ties them together. Very something very unusual. Vanderbilt had, you know, a lot of money, a lot of admirers. This ornate St. John's terminal was topped at the very top by a massive bronze statue of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Just sort of standing there lording over as the trains pull in and and set out for their journeys. So not to spoil anything, but when the St. John's terminal is ripped down later 
that statue is saved, and today it stands in front of the current Grand Central Terminal. So it's, you know, where the overpass, where Absolutely. the cars circle it, that is where the statue is. The statue was not generally well-received. According to a quote from George Templeton Strong, who saw the statue and said, quote, as a work of art, it is bestial. <laughs> well, perhaps Vanderbilt was too. Yeah, I think there was a lot of uh, mixed feelings about that. So with that opening, 1871, the Hudson River Railroad is only used for freight. It has a new shiny station up on 30th Street and 10th Avenue. That is, you know, you had mentioned that that's where a prior version of this depot ha- was located. I just find it's very key today because that's where the High Line ends today. All the specific dimensions of the High Line itself, like where it's situated, which mm. streets it goes on, all of this dates back to this period of time, to the needs of the people. And of course, you realize what's there today, where the High Line terminates at 30th Street, is today's train yard. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then the 30th Street station was an incredibly important building, of course, to the everyday lives of New Yorkers, but was not really seen as like something, and certainly not as spectacular as St. John's, and obviously not as wonderful as Grand Central. And a tour guide from 1910 describing the building. It says, quote, most born and bred New Yorkers do not know the existence of this station, and it has slight interest to the tourist. <laughs> well, of course, because it was a depot for freight, for bananas, for whatever. It was an incredibly functional building. The area between 30th and St. John's is soon populated with grain elevators and warehouses and stockyards. Many of those, as you had said, were on the East River. Now they're on the other side. Um, including, this is kind of a fascinating structure that we don't have anymore in Manhattan, the abattoir. The, the what? <laughs> the, the abattoir. Pardon? The, the, the abattoir? No, no, no. Um, you know, Do tell. Well, I mean, this is, of course, a slaughterhouse. We don't really have slaughterhouses in Manhattan today, but they were lined along the west side in the late 19th century cattle would be kept in new jersey and then when they were you know needed they would be shipped on over to new york to the west side here for slaughter by 1900 this whole area that would become of course the meatpacking district by 1900 had over 250 slaughterhouses packed together you can imagine the the blood running in the streets the manhattan abattoir which was around 34th Street. They actually had cow tunnels. They were moving so much livestock through and street traffic was a little bit insane and they had multiple buildings, so they had these cow tunnels in which they would force animals underground. Well, it's it's actually nice that they thought about the animals having a hard time crossing the street because they weren't doing the same for pedestrians or school children. We're we just, have 10th focusing. and 11th Avenue right. that now have these train tracks because remember the train's coming down on 11th and then moving just a block east to 10th Avenue to finish its route. And once the trains were south of 30th Street, they could just stop wherever they needed to to deliver their merchandise. They'd stop in front of a factory. They'd stop in front of a warehouse. We're not talking about just one car here stopping. We're talking about a train stopping in the avenue, blocking the crosstown traffic. If you think today that it's bad when you're standing at the corner of Houston and Broadway and you're waiting to cross the street and there's a tour bus and a garbage truck and all of a sudden a, a fire truck needs to get by and is honking and it's, you know, 
chaotic. That is nothing. <laughs> Small fry. Can you imagine if there was like a 10-car train <laughs> on Broadway that was blocking all of the East-West and so, crossings? And, you know, and it wasn't at this time, it wasn't just the people who were working. It wasn't just employees. By this time, you had markets that were had gathered really close to a lot of these warehouses because if you this was the era before refrigeration. If you wanted fresh produce, if you wanted fresh meat, the markets had to be close to these places. Thus, you actually had normal pedestrians who were at risk uh, even coming to this neighborhood at all. Well, there were so many accidents, so many people killed, hundreds of people killed. The New York Times said in 1908 that 198 people had been killed in the decade between 1898 and 1908. Just in this area, just in the the train track area. Along the the train tracks on the 11th and 10th Avenue, killed by the trains. Another group in 1908, the Bureau of Municipal Research, reported that 436 people had been killed along that route since 1852. Many of these, and this is where it's totally tragic, many of these were school children who were out early trying to get to school or come home when it was dark, and they didn't see, they slipped on the rails and were killed by not just the trains, but all of the traffic, all the horse-drawn carriages, the streetcars. It was total chaos. It got so bad that in 1892, the New York world referred to this section of 10th Avenue as Death Avenue. But you actually see why the city didn't want these steam engines to come into the middle of New York. I mean, like Absolutely. this kind of fiasco would have, would have happened. The railroad was in a bit of a conundrum because what were their choices? They could elevate their tracks at a huge expense, but they were going to try anything else first. So enter the West Side Cowboys, a group of men on horseback who were hired to lead the trains down the avenue, waving these red flags back and forth, galloping along at six miles per hour in front of the dummy engines, trying to get people's attention, trying desperately to clear 10th Avenue. So cowboys with flags. Nothing has changed along 10th Avenue, Greg. I've seen a few parades uh, that that reminds me of. When you say cowboys, you're not exaggerating. Like, they weren't exact. Like, they were wearing cowboy hats. They were on prize steeds here. And they were directing. (laughs) They were were, were indeed cowboys. (laughs) And they were directing these train engines. It's It's an incredible reversal of technology here. You have to rely on the horses to draw the trains. But by this time, it was a requirement that these freight trains pull themselves to this area because of these marketplaces. People had to get their food as the city is getting more crowded and far overcrowded. So it's important to have simple street vendors be able to go to a place where they could buy their food and then take it back to their neighborhood. That's right. But it wasn't just about New Yorkers having enough food. It was about the nation having Mm. enough food. Because take, for example, Washington Market, which is probably the most important of these food markets. It was located in today's Tribeca around Fulton and Washington and Greenwich streets. And it was the largest fruit and produce exchange in the nation at the time. So not just the city here. Tons of produce was coming through here for national consumption. Boats were bringing food into the piers because, of course, the market and the train lines were also right next to the piers, Mm -hmm. which was vital. So companies importers and exporters were sending food between the trains and the piers, changing hands in these marketplaces. It meant that 
there was a wild variety of food that was accessible to New York City. European cheeses, Russian caviar, this was available fresh at the Washington Market. So, and further up in the Gansevoort Market and mm-hmm. up in the Meatpacking District, which developed as well. In 1879, the Gansevoort Market which was an open-air market developed in this area, and there was certainly no shortage of cattle. It was a carnivore's delight up there, Greg. (laughs) Few vegetarians here. So this impossible, unnavigable traffic that's happening over here on the west side just gets worse when the 20th century happens, and the advent of the automobile is now introduced into all of this. So throughout the beginning of the 20th century, people were trying to come up with a way to relieve some of this traffic, to relieve some of the danger, and to make it a better working environment, and just make it more pleasant overall. So the very first plan of significance was in 1925, and the plan involved a massive three-level highway. You know, on the main level, you have local traffic, local vehicles. On the second level, you would have all the trains. And then on the third level, you would have all that highway traffic, mm. all the through through traffic. So imagine that streaking up the west side. It right? sounds very Le Corbusier, doesn't it? It, that was, it looks like one of those fantasy drawings that you would see in like popular mechanics of yes. the 1920s. But the eventual idea, the one that actually does happen, is only slightly less ridiculous than this. Because for regular traffic, for you know normal cars passing through the area, they opted for an elevated highway. And so an elevated highway was built along the west side, called the West Side Highway or the Miller Highway, which was named for the Manhattan Borough president of the time, Julius Miller, who was a big proponent of this. So, I mean, it's... A, You know, it's essentially like the FDR Drive, which is on the east side. It's not really so unusual if you think about it in that respect. Was it at the same spot as today's West Side Highway? The exact same spot. Well, if you think about it, the West Side Highway becomes elevated. Right, exactly. It's It's not so weird. This project was started in 1929 and would continue for the next two decades. Now, I mean, this is for another podcast, but, you know, we're getting around the time where Robert Moses enters the picture and becomes involved in New York transportation. So he takes it to another level once it gets further up Manhattan when you're talking about the development of Riverside Park. So that takes care of the two layers of the local traffic and the through traffic. So what about those trains? They decided that they also wanted an elevated structure, but a separate one that was separate from the automobiles. Because for the trains, too, it was not an optimal experience. They were being held up as they were trying to make deliveries uh, by the other traffic on the street. And they had a little problem with thieves poaching their merchandise. Oh, then they have gangs, right? There were gangs along 10th Avenue. And you can imagine that if a train is stopped out in front of a storehouse or a warehouse and the sides of the train go up, sticky fingers, sticky passing fingers mm-hmm. might just get their hands on some of that merchandise. So if you just elevate the whole thing, uh, it eliminates that problem for the most part. So in the 1930s, they decided to develop the West Side Elevated Freight Railroad. It's they catchy. Didn't, they didn't call it the High Line. High Line's snappy, you know. Um, they called the, what was that, the WSEFR <laughs> for short. <laughs> because things needed to be loaded and unloaded from this train and needed to make frequent stops, the train needed to move more slowly. And this way, the train could literally move 
into actual buildings. If you were elevating it off the street, there was no limit to where a, a train could like pull into, you know? Especially if you run the tracks directly through the buildings and through the blocks as opposed to up right. the street. To put it into perspective, the city has already experimented with elevated railroads. For decades, they've had four lines of elevated railroads that ran through Manhattan for passengers. They were able to see the strengths and weaknesses of that. The weaknesses being that it creates really grim street life and uh, cut off a lot of sunlight on major streets where people lived. By cutting through blocks and by pulling into buildings, it was supposed to alleviate that problem. But wouldn't they have to demolish buildings in order to run a track through them? A lot of the costs were incurred by the businesses themselves who were thrilled by this idea. Oh, right. You know, let me explain how this really worked properly, okay? So you had trains pulling into Manhattan from the north, right? They were coming down the side of Manhattan. Once they got to 60th Street, this would be a, a train yard, and all of a sudden they would go underground for 30 blocks. Then they would arrive at that 30th Street station, which would be refurbished for this particular upgrade. From there, the trains would continue onto diesel electric trains, and those mm. would be able to be pulled on those elevated trains as far as they needed to go on the west side. It could meander through the neighborhood, as it does, pulling directly into buildings, into the businesses that it needs to, and pass through for those that doesn't need to, with optional off-ramps to other buildings that weren't actually part of the uh-huh. elevated. Which explains some of the offshoots of the High Line that you see today. Yes, exactly. Now, for instance, the National Biscuit Company had a really juicy deal here. Um, we know them today juicy? as... Well, maybe sweet deal is a better word. Um, We know them today as Nabisco. They had a factory on 15th Street. They actually had the train pull right into the building onto the second floor, and they could load and unload stock, sending their cookies, their Oreos, out throughout the nation. Most of the concerns of the West Side by the early 20th century involved meat, involved dairy and refrigeration, and some wholesale grocers that were here. The building on Gansevoort, in fact, where the High Line stops, the building on the south side of the street is called the Manhattan Refrigeration Company, and the train used to pull into there as well, and they could load and unload carcasses and frozen meats uh, to be distributed throughout the nation. And were there refrigerated rail cars? There were refrigerated rail cars. Before, you would have buildings, you would have warehouses that had refrigeration units, but the cars themselves would not. So you would risk things spoiling. That's another reason that pulling directly into these buildings was very beneficial. Now, remember St. John's Depot? They decided to demolish the old St. John's because it's inadequate for these new train lines and for modern facilities. They move moved Cornelius' statue. Yes, goodbye. The statue's gone. They moved this slightly north Spring Street and West Street here. Gotcha. Um, they keep that name, though, because people are just like they're used to referring to this terminal as the St. John's Terminal, so they keep referring to it even though it's nowhere near anything called St. John's. (laughs) The terminal opens in June of 1934 at a dedication here at St. John. It was presided by Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, who proclaimed, quote, Amen, death to Death Avenue. So Uh. this was seen as the solution to all of these problems. What's important about moving it here to Spring Street, while they, why they had to move it. You, know, you had mentioned that during the 19th century, there were piers, and so it, the trains could transfer products in between. Well, in 1927, just a few years before, is the opening of the Holland Tunnel. 
and the mm-hmm. opening is right here. So now they can use automobiles to actually transport between trains to trucks and vehicles. So as I said, it opened in 1934, around the Great Depression, probably not the best time to open this new enterprise. The symbolic last spike of the building of the High Line was in March of 1941, and the very last 10th Avenue cowboy made his last run at this time. His name was George Hayde, and his horse was named Cyclone, and he was the official last 10th Avenue cowboy. In 1941? In 1941, because it was a very drawn-out process and also Mm. because you had all these independent businesses it took you know them a full decade and also that great depression thing happened right by the way all the horses were sold to a riding school everyone was really enthusiastic about this elevated freight system they thought well this is the way it's going to be this is going to make our city much more efficient well it was certainly very modern very modern the streets are much cleaner right right they only really use this for two decades before things start Going downhill. Well, because you had just mentioned the Holland Tunnel opening, right? Which was a sign, a true sign of the future. Mm Mm-hmm of New York becoming a car city and a truck city as well. The 1950s would usher in the growth of the American interstate highway system under Eisenhower, which would certainly speed up transportation in the country. There would be major innovations in trucking itself. There were now refrigerated trucks. The automobile could transport meat as well without it spoiling It was suddenly more efficient, in many cases, to deliver things by truck. Suddenly, the the nation's eating habits were changing as well. We were eating frozen food. No need to eat that pesky fresh food. You could eat frozen food from anywhere. And you had nationwide grocery chains. The whole business was changing. We didn't have the markets anymore. So the, the High Line, very quickly, in just a couple decades, seemed completely outdated and kind of unnecessary. Also, businesses, the warehouses and factories were changing. The complexion of the West Side industry was changing. All as right, well. Tom, this is the time. This is the that point in the podcast where, where we hit the deterioration of New York. We almost need a theme song. Sad but true. And in the 1960s, a section of this high line... You mean the West Side Elevated Freight Railroad? Thank you. A section, the southern section uh, that went through the West Village was demolished in the 60s. Meaning that St. John's Terminal has already been demolished, wiped away by this, uh, by this time. And the Washington Market, the big famous market, closed in the 1960s. So something that had just started a couple decades previous to this was already being ripped down. Now, it was operating during the 70s, but was being used less and less. It was, you know, falling into disuse. And finally, the trains ground entirely to a halt um, in April of 1980. When the last train would run along the High Line, operated by Conrail at the time, and allegedly, as a multiple references to this, allegedly <laughs> consisting of three carloads of frozen turkeys. Frozen turkeys, the last passengers. Ground ground <laughs> well the action of course is happening around the elevated trains here with the closure of those tracks and you have the closure of all these different warehouses and all these factories around it and this is a non-residential neighborhood so just combine that and throw it into the 1970s and what do you get 
An prostitutes, <laughs> prostitutes, drug dealers was a very seedy area. I mean, you had automobile repair shops moving into some of these places. You had body shops moving here. You know, more beneficial, I would argue personally, is that around this area, around the High Line, um, would be an underground or alternative scenes would flock to this area, of course, as they often do in urban areas. It had a symbolic forlorn feel to it. Um, this elevated high line. In the 1970s, this area was known for the burgeoning gay scene for places like the Mineshaft and the Anvil and other masculine-sounding names. And sex clubs were strewn about in this area. Places like the heterosexual Hellfire Club um, were also around the neighborhood. You had musical innovation. You had these abandoned warehouses could be turned into dance floors. For instance, the Roxy was opened in the late 70s, was a roller disco, and was also a key location for the development of house music and the breakdancing scene of the 1980s. In the 1990s, you even had larger clubs opening into some of these abandoned warehouses like the Sound Factory and the Tunnel. I am now, at this point, crying into my (laughs) microphone. Um... You may have gone to one of those once or twice in your once life. Start the house beat. There, you know, there were attempts at a certain kind of to bring a certain kind of energy revitalization to this area in 1987. In the shadow of the High Line, you had the Dia Center for the Arts. They opened the very first art gallery in the neighborhood. That was 1987. There was even an attempt to revitalize the actual train tracks themselves. Some people in the neighborhood wanted to rip them down entirely. In the mid-80s, there was a man by the name of Peter Oblitz. He was a dance instructor. He also worked for the MTA. Peter did not want to see the tracks ripped down. Far from it. He loved trains. He loved them so much that he actually lived in two dining cars on the tracks over Pennsylvania Station. That's over, incredible. He lived in the di- like dining cars. I don't know how they allowed it. This was, this, you know... The early 80s. You could just live in a dining car on an unused track somewhere. It was extraordinary. In 1982 was the very first time that he actually snuck on top of those abandoned elevated tracks, which we're calling the High Line now. You know, it was closed to the public. You couldn't wander up there. But he managed to get up there and saw this amazing world of, of overgrowth. And he, what he saw here was a way to bring the trains back. Others, who we'll talk about in a second, would see something different with these abandoned tracks. He proposed reopening the, the trains as a tourist attraction for passengers. This was around the time that the Jacob Javits Center would be opened in the 1980s. He proposed that you, we even extend the tracks even further up and so he could drop off passengers at the convention center, which makes sense. Well, that would have been sense, really much it? more convenient than what we have right now. This I is... still can't figure out how to get into Javits Center. <laughs> Maybe it's because it was the 80s. He was rebuffed by city officials who called this a far-fetched idea. They're not, they didn't want to put any money into this. It was way too extravagant. Conrail, who you had mentioned, who owned the tracks by this time, they were going to spend millions of dollars to tear this thing down they they didn't want to do that so they sold it to him to peter for ten dollars ten dollars do you know how much that is in today's money twenty (laughs) dollars okay so i mean unfortunately though like he you know this never got off the ground i mean he even set up an improvement foundation like it was this dream was never realized he died in 1996 so he never even got to see what happened here i'm up in the air whether he would have liked it but i think that he would have appreciated the fact that they're finally in use and that they're finally um beloved by so many people and what did happen here well 
In 1999, two New Yorkers who lived in the neighborhood, a man named Joshua David and another named Robert Hammond, they met at a community board meeting and they realized that they were both into the idea of saving this old structure. Everyone had a story associated with it, but it was a uh, it just seemed very was, mysterious, right, you know. Right, it was that thing that was off to the side of their neighborhood over in Chelsea in the West Village. People would write about it. It just seemed like something that it didn't was connected to modern New York. So together they founded the Friends of the High Line, an organization that was hoping to preserve it and to reuse this structure as a public space. It was an idea that was similar to the Promenade Plantée in Paris, which is a three-mile elevated walkway in the 12th arrondissement on the old Vincennes railway line. If you're in Paris, anytime you should head over, it's sort of back by the Bastille Opera. So it's similar to the High Line. It predates the High Line. Mm. It opened in 1993, and it was the world's first elevated park. And it's on an old train track, an old elevated aqueduct and train track, and you can stroll along 20, 30 feet in the air, like the High Line. So over the next decade, uh, Josh and Robert work very, very hard on this, and the plan starts to take off. It's interesting because it started out as a preservation project. Let's restore this, let's preserve this, because this structure tells a story. Well, there was an idea of even keeping it fecund, keeping it like overgrown, right? Right. right. That morphed into something much, much bigger, which through lots of fundraising, networking, celebrity appearances, I mean, it went from preservation into a way to drive economic renewal for all of the neighborhoods that it passed through. Now, it helps by this point that like places like the Meatpacking District are already sort of becoming thriving neighborhoods already. Right. So this is giving a, a lot of push. It's not the 1980s anymore right. over in these areas. In 2002, the city council passed a resolution in favor of the High Line's reuse. And the same year, the Friends of the High Line produced a study that showed that redeveloping the High Line made economical sense because it would create this huge increase in tax money that would outweigh the cost of redeveloping it. A few years later, in 2004, the city committed $50 million to the project, which was supported by Mayor Bloomberg. Um, we didn't even say that Giuliani wanted to rip it down. Okay. <laughs> And speakers Gifford Miller, who, by the way, was a college friend, a very good friend of Robbie's at Princeton, and Christine Quinn. I don't know if you remember in 2003, there was a big uh, competition. They showed all the drawings at Grand Central, and they hundreds yeah. of designs. Many of them, like, they weren't doable. They were no. just like, they, I they think were they, fantastical. Well, they were just like, let's think about this, no ceiling of right. what we can do. The next year in 2004, the, the Friends of the High Line selected James Corner Field Operations as the landscape architecture firm, and Diller, Scofolito, and Renfro as the architects. They would show their first designs at MoMA the next year. So the Friends of the High Line were so savvy this whole way. They were building this buzz about the project at every step of the way. You'd read about it in the paper. You could see the designs at MoMA. And people were getting involved in the High Line, contributing and making this a reality. Construction began on phase one in April of 2006 with Bloomberg presiding over the ceremony. And that was the, the southern section from Gansford Street up to 20th Street. And they removed all the tracks and they cataloged everything. They, they restored the tracks and other debris, but they were also taking careful notice of what was on the High Line at that point, what was on the tracks, which was a bunch of wild plant growth. Some of these things, the tracks, some of the things that were found there would be reused and reincorporated into the park, and the landscaping begins a couple years later. 
there are a couple sections that literally look like what it would have looked like abandoned right. 20 years ago, which well, I think is a really interesting choice. There, there are 210 plant species represented on the High Line right now, and it's, the landscaping is one of the biggest draws of the High Line. Of course. It reflects the natural landscape that developed over decades of disuse. Which is funny because all of this is planted on something that's very historical, but in an area that is very now, very like of the moment. There's a lot of buildings that are newly constructed right now, very unique modern architecture. There's a standard hotel with its 337 rooms that straddles actually over the High Line at 13th Street. And in 2009, Bloomberg said that there were 30 construction projects along the High Line that had started since the High Line was announced. Even as you listen to this, like the moment it hits your ears, there may be a new building that's been erected (laughs) at some point. I couldn't believe it. I just walked the phase two uh, last week. I couldn't believe the new buildings that are in that section. And I just, it's going to continue to develop because the neighborhoods of the Meatpacking District and West Chelsea are currently thriving with no sign of slowing down at this moment. Phase one of the High Line opened to the public on June 9th, 2009. Phase two, which is West 20th up to West 30th Street, opened two years later, June 8th, 2011. We'll see about phase three, which will be 30th Street up to 34th Street. That's really in the hands of the Hudson Yards, which is this even larger development that is slated to begin sometime in the near future. That's supposed to cover up the West Side Rail Yards. Obviously, the High Line has been a huge hit with visitors and tourists. Last year, in 2011, there were 3.7 million visitors, which is way more, I think, than they forecasted. It has already become one of New York's top tourist attractions. There have been some controversies, I think, for the residents who lived in this area, businesses that operated around this area in the Highline zone prior to its redevelopment because they've seen their taxes go up. They've seen their property <laughs> values increase Definitely. because of this. Mm-hmm. So it, it's changing the neighborhood. We shouldn't simply say that it's this amazing driving force for good. It's a, Most it's, of it certainly is. It's a driving force for change. Bringing lots of tourists and lots of money into the area, while at the same time offering everybody a new perspective on New York. So that was our general history on the High Line. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for many pictures of the old Death Avenue and the new construction. And we'll have some pictures of the new High Line as well. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. And I also wanted to add that this is not the end of the podcast. I'm going to try something that we have never done before, Tom. I'm going to leave it as a mystery right now, but check your podcast feeds in two weeks for another podcast that will be associated with this one. So Mm -hmm. it'll be a big experiment. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited about it. Tune in in two weeks for that. Thank oh, you. how mysterious. I know. Can you just, isn't it just killing you? Uh, well, thank you for joining us for our history of the High Line. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.